Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 30th, 2018, and I want to mention that if you are listening to this on the iPhone podcast app, you are likely to have all the episodes going back to 2015 on your feed, and I think that's true as well for uh, Android listeners. But if you search for EconTalk on your iPhone podcast app, in addition to the regular feed, you will also find individual years episodes. So the 2006, 2007, 2008, all the way up through 2014, they're all there. So feel free to download and listen to those as well and not just go back to 2015 as long as you give me, cut me a lot of slack that I was not a particularly great interviewer, I believe, in the past. I think I like to think I've gotten better. I also want to mention there is a free app for iPhones uh, called Economics that happens to just be EconTalk as as it turns out, that is not related to, to directly to this program. We didn't create it, but it's out there, and it's a fantastic app. It has every episode. You can comment with your uh, – you can voice comment. It has all kinds of different speed choices. It's beautifully laid out, so uh, feel free to check that out. Now on to today's guest. Uh, he is science journalist and author John Horgan. His latest book – the subject of today's episode is Mind-Body Problems, Science, Subjectivity, and Who We Really Are. John, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here, Russ. And I'm going to mention to parents listening with young children, we may get into some adult themes in this conversation, so feel free to vet uh, the episode before sharing with your kids. So I want to start with a, a very basic question. What is the classic mind-body problem, and why do you make it a plural in your title, Mind-Body Problems? Well, the, the phrase mind-body problem dates back to the early 19th century. It was German philosophers uh, who came up with it. And um, they realized that if you s- assume that reality is made of matter, uh, which is what science was strongly implying um, back at the beginning of the 19th century. A lot of people had already accepted that. That creates a problem if you're trying to understand the mind, consciousness, uh, free will, all these different mind-related phenomena. And so um, eventually the phrase spread to uh, the English-speaking world. Uh, American scientists and philosophers started bandying it about um, it's still not as well known in some circles as um, just the problem of consciousness or the problem of um, free will. Uh, but I like the mind-body problem because, in, in part because it's kind of vague and it, it encompasses all these different mysteries that are posed by the mind and even by human nature, by human behavior. The way that I like to um, describe the mind-body problem to try to help my students understand it, for example, and put it in uh, straightforward terms, is that it's really the problem of who we are and what are we and what can we be and what should we be. And, you know, these are all the, the, the 
deepest mysteries of existence. And they're, they're questions that uh, humans have been, been asking forever, really, certainly going back at least to uh, ancient Greece. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what the mind-body problem is about. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as uh, is, is matter all there is. It, it, it seems obvious to most people that, who are scientifically minded that, of course, matter is all there is. It's all chemistry. Yeah. It's all just a bunch of chemistry, and um, there's nothing else there. It feels weird to suggest otherwise. Uh, but you quote someone saying, um, "You know, we're the matter that longs to matter," and that yeah. is the strangest thing. We're, we'll, I expect we'll come back to that issue. I find that deeply uh, puzzling and and uh, and fascinating, but. The problem itself of who we are and are we just animals, are we just physical neurons firing in chemistry is a problem that I would say – you don't say this explicitly in your book, but I would say there are three groups of people who try to think about this in a systematic way. Scientists, particularly neuroscientists, uh, philosophers, and theologians. And you spend uh, a lot of your time – uh, with the first two in the book. So describe – this, by the way, I will tell listeners, this is an utterly fascinating book on so many dimensions. If you care about any of these issues like the meaning of life, which I think most thinking people do, you'll find the book provocative. But it's more than just an interesting exploration of these issues because it's a portrait of the views of a variety of different people. So describe how you came to write the book the way you did and uh, why – why that that was a good idea because I think it was even though it struck me once I got started I thought whoa this isn't what I this is what I bargained for with this book it kind of was taken aback and it does two things one thing it does is it's incredibly entertaining to the portraits you paint of these people but uh, describe what you did okay first I think I I, I keep forgetting to mention this I, I do want people to read my book and I should say it's online and it's for free this is the first time I've ever done this. Uh, with a book, but um, I really, I, at, at this point in my career, um, I, I want people to read my stuff more than I want to make money. Uh, so I encourage people to check it out online. All right. So why did I write the book in this way? Um, I, I have to give you a little history. Well, tell, I, I, I didn't give you a chance to talk about what, tell about what, what you did actually first and then tell why. You didn't uh, just write a book about these issues. You went and interviewed a bunch of people. Describe that. Yeah, well, um, I, but I have to I have to explain the uh, the reasoning behind it. I, I I had always assumed, as a science writer, that there is a solution to the big mind body problem. So I started writing about consciousness um, in the late 1980s when consciousness was becoming uh, what it looked like it might be a solvable scientific problem. This is when Francis Crick and this young sidekick of his, Christoph Koch. Uh, started writing articles for Scientific American and other journals, laying out this program for reducing consciousness to uh, physiological processes in the brain. So they were. They said philosophers have had thousands of years to try to figure out uh, what consciousness is and how it's related to matter. They haven't done a good job of it. So now science is going to take over, and and we finally have the tools to do that. And I found that thrilling. And I started writing articles for Scientific American about this quest to solve consciousness. And um, I've been following the effort to solve consciousness 
for decades now. And I assumed that um, if there would be, a, if there is a solution uh, that science can, um, can discover, it will be a single solution. And, and so you, you normally have when a, a field is in its uh, immature state, lots of different ideas. Uh, there isn't a, a kind of unifying paradigm yet. And that was the state of consciousness studies when I started writing about it um, in the late 80s and early 90s. But I expected all these different strands of research to converge on one correct way of looking at the problem. And that just never happened. So I went to a big consciousness conference in, um, in, 20, uh, in 2015 where there were some philosophers and neuroscientists, including this guy, Christoph Koch, uh, who had been talking about consciousness with Francis Crick in the late, 19, uh, late 1980s and early 1990s. And they were talking about this new theory of consciousness, integrated information theory, um, that they thought could solve consciousness once and for all. But the theory had these radical implications. Uh, it suggested that consciousness is not just a property of, uh, of brains, it might, or even of um, just living matter, it could be a proper property of all matter. One of the implications of, of the theory is that even a single proton, because it has three quarks that are uh, doing a little bit of rudimentary information processing might have a tiny little spark of consciousness. So this is the old mystical doctrine of panpsychism. And I thought everybody had gone off the deep end that they were even taking an idea like this seriously. It seemed to me to be a, a big step backward from, uh, from materialism and even a return to this kind of narcissistic superstitious thinking about humanity's place in the universe. Um, and I began wondering what was going on with this, this scientist, Christoph, uh, Christoph Koch. By the way, I, I sometimes pronounce his, his name Koch, sometimes Koch. I, I can't decide which way to pronounce it. You said it, it Koch a minute ago. It, so it's yeah, K-O-C-H. I, I just wanted to explain that in case, in case listeners uh, notice the, uh, the difference. I'll stick with Koch for now. So, I thought that he must have been going through some kind of personal identity crisis to have seized upon a theory that to me was just ridiculous on its face. Um, and then I started thinking, well, maybe the reason I'm so resistant to the theory is that I'm committed to the idea that, that uh, science will never discover a theory of consciousness, will never solve the problem of consciousness, which is something that I've said um, in my previous books. And that got me thinking about the role of subjective thinking and emotions and personal experience in influencing our intellectual views, our supposedly rational scientific views of the world and of ourselves. And the whole quest for consciousness assumes that consciousness and the mind-body problem in general, the sort of more expansive way of looking at at the mind can be reduced to an objective problem. We, we can, we can uh, get all the subjectivity out and come up with a, um, with a really clear, rational way of solving this problem in the same way that we do with more traditional 
scientific problems like photosynthesis or heredity or, or uh, gravity and things like that. And at some point, it occurred to me that maybe when it comes to the mind-body problem, consciousness and free will and the meaning of life, uh, we will never get subjectivity out of our um, out of our deliberations, out of our attempts to to try to uh, come up with solutions. Maybe every individual person has to come up with his or her own solution to the mind-body problem. So subjectivity, in a way, is the problem um, that we're trying to get rid of, and we can't get rid of subjectivity. And then I thought, what am I going to do with this idea? How am I going to elaborate on it? And and the idea for the book uh, came to me, a book in which I would find mind-body thinkers um, who were wrestling with it from the point of view of different disciplines, philosophy, neuroscience, evolutionary biology, even economics. And I would try to show how their personal lives had affected their professional views. And I looked for people with particularly dramatic personal identity crises. In the case of Christoph Koch, it was um, the breakup of his, what he had thought was a very happy, stable marriage. Uh, plus the loss of his religious faith. He'd been a devout Catholic since um, he was a little kid. And uh, shortly before he seized upon integrated information theory, he stopped believing in God. And he started searching for other answers. Uh, with other people in the book, they were wrestling with alcoholism, with severe mental illness, schizophrenia in one case, bipolar disorder in another case. The One of my favorite characters in the book, Deirdre McCloskey, uh, who's a very prominent economist and somebody that, uh, that, that you know, uh, Russ, she uh, was born a he and spent uh, the first 50 years of his life as Donald McCloskey and was married and had two children and suddenly in his 50s decided that he was really a woman. And I, I, I really just wanted to show the intersection, um, the entanglement of these sorts of personal issues um, with the attempts of, uh, of these intellectuals, these thinkers, uh, to come to grips with the mind-body problem. So that's why I wrote the book as a series of nine profiles of different thinkers who had very different approaches to the mind-body problem. I've been lucky to learn economics from both Donald and Deirdre McCloskey. Donald was my professor at Chicago, and I'm still uh, learning from Deirdre. And uh, she is a former Econ Talk guest, and we'll put up uh, uh, the link to that episode with her with her work uh, as well. But the the focus of the book as a series of of portraits. Besides the fact that it's inc- these people are very interesting people, right? It would be a, it would be a fun book even if they didn't have much to say because they have about the mind body problem because they're just interesting people and they've gone through yeah. interesting things. But one of the it does it does allow you to hit this theme, which is a big theme of this program that we're all prone to confirmation bias that our faith in our reason and objectivity is greatly overstated. And the book hammers that on that as a meta theme all the way through. And it's utterly 
It's utterly fascinating. But as a result, because it is a, a medley, uh, it, it could turn out, I don't think it does, but it could turn out to be nothing more than an interesting grab bag of perspectives. But it's more than that. And and what would you say is the lesson of the book, both for you as the author, of having explored in, in some extraordinary depth some of the personal travails and experiences that you write about? But what's the lesson for you and what's the lesson you want me as the reader to take away? I guess what's what's just speaking for myself um, in the course of writing this book, I think I've become not just open minded. That's too mild a term for how I feel now. I I have decided that when it comes to understanding ourselves and deciding who we are, uh, that there is no hope for a final answer and that I don't want there to be a final answer. And it's not just because um, I'm in love with mystery. Uh, I, 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 I've begun to see how science, especially when, it, when it's turned on us, when we're using science to try to understand ourselves, has this terrible downside of possibly limiting our freedom and limiting our imagination. Uh, so just in terms of um, personal identity, uh, I, th- I see human history as this um, gradual process of giving us more and more choices to decide who we really are. And science has helped us understand ourselves from different perspectives. Um, you know, certainly evolutionary biology did that, helping us understand our connection to all the other uh, species on Earth, but there's a political and philo- philosophical dimension uh, to this as well. The expansion of human rights is really about giving us more freedom to discover who we really are and to change our minds about who we really are. And uh, so, I at, by the, the time I finished the book, I guess I had come to this. I, I see that our effort to figure out what reality is and what we are as being in this tension with our desire for freedom. And I guess when it comes to human nature, you know, I I think in some cases science is really dictating how the world works. I'm not a total postmodernist. I don't think scientists are just making stories up. Uh, And I, I, you know, I think that uh, the atomic theory of matter and the periodic table and the theory of evolution, they're, they're giving us deep insights into how nature works. But science has always been very weak when it comes to trying to help us understand ourselves and to solve some of these deep riddles like, uh, like free will itself, which I see as pretty much synonymous with freedom. And, um, so I guess the biggest lesson for, for me, one way I could put it is that freedom should, when it comes to human beings, uh, when it comes to trying to understand who we really are, freedom should trump truth. And we should be very wary of anyone, whether they are religious prophets or scientists or philosophers or politicians who says they know who we really are and that they and that there are consequences 
to that, that we should live in a certain way to fulfill this vision of, of who we really are. There have been all these utopian visions in the past that have been based on a, a single idea about what we really are. And in general, those have led to disaster. I'm reminded of Adam Smith's Man of System in the Theory of Moral Sentiments where he says that the Man of System thinks that uh, the humanity is just like pieces on a chessboard that you can move around without uh, being conscious of how they have – that they have their own modes of motion and their own desires and and the people who try to impose their will on that chessboard do tend to be uh, – lead to – Death and destruction. It's kind of a horrifying aspect of modernity. But I want to. I want to. I want to go to the. I want to digress for a second. Maybe it's not a digression, but I want to talk about the Enlightenment and and reason, because you made a very interesting uh, summary of of sort of of what I would say is the the benefits of science. We've got so many wonderful things, right? Uh, from science and technology, glorious things, glorious things from the liberation of reason. In the last 300 years or so, uh, and most of those glorious things are material. Uh, almost by definition, that's going to be the case. Uh, there are people who think science can give us non-material things. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, at some point today. But the Enlightenment's been a, a pretty great thing, and yet there's that, and yet, and yet, the um, worship of reason is is can be extremely dangerous. And this idea that there's only one. Um, Correct way to think of ourselves. Uh, I agree with you. is a, is a is a seductive and potentially dangerous idea. So I'm a big fan of freedom and the freedom to decide for oneself how to look at oneself, how to look at human existence. Yet at the same time, you have to be conscious and aware of the fact that we're the product of our family, our genes, our destiny. Perhaps that, that free will thing rears its head, and you start to say. Do you really think I can choose how I make myself? I really have the freedom to be who I want to be, to mold myself. I mean, that really is in many ways, I think, the American dream. And um, I'm not as romantic as I used to be about it. I'm a little less romantic because I, I see it not working out so well overall. It's not as, as glorious as it seems to be. But um, it seems to me it's a very mixed bag. Yeah, I, I – you know – Freedom means different things to different people. So I actually, I, I, the last full chapter of my book was devoted to McCloskey, um, who has a vision of human history that I find very appealing to me because I'm an optimist and I believe in progress. I want to believe in progress <laughs> and I want to believe that life is getting better and better uh, for more and more people in spite of our obvious uh, setbacks. And McCloskey is pretty much a laissez-faire uh, capitalist. And, um, you know, she, she thinks that we're going to work out our current problems. We're going to figure out climate change. We're going to overcome some of the excesses of capitalism. We spoke a little bit before Donald Trump was elected. And, um, and I, you know, I was, I, I don't think either of us were uh, was anticipating that Trump would be elected. I'm not as optimistic in general as I was a couple of years ago, and I'm much less optimistic about capitalism working through its problems 
for the benefit of all. And capitalism, of course, is one expression of uh, of our modern freedom. Um, so I'm, you know, that that's something that I. What I've are you going to do with that, John? I mean, that's a. Yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic to your view. I'm a hardcore free market capitalist myself, but I also am worried about it. But where? Do, what's the alternative? We, we, given your unease about single-minded solutions, what's? Um, it's hard to beat the bottom-up emergent aspect of capitalism. You could argue it's too much crony capitalism. Great, let's get rid of the crony part. I'm all for that. But where are we going to go? Yeah, uh, I, I'm hoping that it can just be reform and regulation. Uh, you know, the, so the, the Scandinavian countries, which are always upheld as these models of successful societies, they're certainly capitalistic, but with lots of regulation and government intervention. I don't think capitalism works very well when it comes to healthcare. American healthcare is is a total mess. Uh, you know, we pay more than any any other country, and our our health outcomes are way down compared to. Uh, most other countries, certainly the our, the Western European countries, um, and uh, capitalism has produced uh, inequality that I think is has become uh, toxic. Uh, so uh, there's also the problem of uh, climate change, which is a product of um, unreg- unregulated um, industry. So my hope is that. People come to their senses, even the free market people, and realize that the, you know there's certain areas where capitalism works really well, and other where other areas where you need some kind of government intervention. And um, I'm I'm just hoping that happens still. But right now, it's hard to see how it's going to happen. I certainly don't have any specific solutions uh, to solving these problems. I just add a couple things. Um, if you look at the proportion. Of our healthcare spending that is out of pocket versus paid by third party, the out of pocket out of pocket portion has steadily decreased since about 1950, coinciding with a massive increase in both quality and uh, expenditure. So it's again a very mixed story, but we don't have anything remotely like free market healthcare. So I would just urge you not to judge the current mess that we are in of spending enormous amounts for maybe not such great results as a product of free choice. It's um, an unbelievably highly regulated market. Uh, so it's not much of a, it's not a free market for sure. And a government's hand is, is quite heavy right now. We could disagree over how much, how different or not it would be if government weren't involved, there would be different problems, of course. Uh, but I think, I think that's, that's important to, uh, to, to put on the table. Well, I think we're probably pretty much in in, in agreement on. I, I don't see, I don't see an alternative to capitalism. I, I've had um, uh, some critics of capitalism come to my school. Uh, Naomi Klein gave a talk a couple of years ago, and uh, you know, a real barn burner. Um, and it was about how uh, we we need to do we need to reform capitalism in some kind of radical way, or civilization is going to end because of global warming. That was her message. Um, but no, Naomi Klein, uh, at least from my conversation with her, she recognizes that we need capitalism in some form. She's not a a, a real revolutionary, 
Um, I don't think I know any true revolutionaries. Uh, so it's a matter of um, tweaking the system to help it overcome some of these problems. And, you know, just going back to the theme of my book, um, ensuring that whatever system we have, it keeps giving us more options for living our, our lives, uh, for, for um, choosing different identities for ourselves and even changing our minds and, and uh, adopting different identities uh, at different points in our, our life, the way that, uh, the, the way that Deirdre McCloskey lives, that the, the amount of freedom that we have today is so much more than what certainly what was available when I was a kid yep. when, when it was still illegal for, um, for blacks and whites to get married in certain States, abortion was illegal. Um, homosexuality was a crime in, in, uh, many States. And, uh, you know what, so I'm, I'm sort of in the Steven Pinker camp of trying to get people to recognize that we really are making extraordinary progress in many ways, but it's threatened. It's constantly threatened and it's threatened more now than any, that at any time in recent history by this resurgence of, uh, maybe this is uh, too strong uh, a term, but of, um, very traditional, even kind of racist and sexist thinking and and a throwback to other kinds of ideologies that do not accept um, certain kinds of human freedom. I'm worried about a different set of things. I'm somewhat worried about that. I don't think the system is pretty resilient right now. Uh, I'm more worried about populism writ large and uh, a decline in the rule of law, which would lead to all kinds of things of which the ones you're worried about would be part of them. And there, but there'd be other things too and restrictions on freedom for, for lots of people. And uh, I, I think that's a somewhat ominous turn. So, you know, my view as listeners know on the enlightenment thing is that I, I'm not as the optimist I used to be. Uh, I've been influenced by John Gray and, and Jordan Peterson and others to think a little bit more uh, broadly beyond the material well-being that we have, which I'm a big fan of, but I don't want to over, I don't want to oversell it. It seems to me that that the Trump card that you have to play and I have to play as a freedom lover is that if you don't like, say, the loneliness of modern American life, which I worry about right now, uh, you're free to join clubs, communities, churches. You can go live in a small town if you if that is what you long for. Um, that freedom includes the freedom to join with others, and so. I think we need to – that's the trust I have in, in emergent solutions to to these problems. I, you know, the example of technology, that many of us are addicted to it and that it's unhealthy and it's destructive of human – the human experience, I think that's true. And I think it's really important that we be free to make that choice for ourselves, to give up technology uh, if we can, uh, to look for ways to help ourselves if we feel we're addicted and not to have, say, those solutions to those challenges come from from uh, legislature. So I think that's that's where I think we agree. I hope. Yes, um, absolutely. I, the way I, I put it in my book is that you know we've had this age-old quest to find the perfect society, a, a, a utopia in which we can all um, discover our true selves. 
And the implication is that when we discover our true selves, we're all going to be living in, in, uh, in harmony with each other and, and with the rest of nature. Um, and what we have now, and, and of course this utopian idea, which is manifested in, um, in certain religions and, and also in, in the ideologies of uh, communism and, and, um, national, uh, socialism and the Nazi party, uh, it's led to some very bad consequences, but it's still, you you need a utopian vision, uh, if you are dissatisfied with the way things are, um, you know, you've, you've got to have a vision of how you want things to be. And what I think is fantastic and underappreciated um, about what we have in the United States right now, and I'd say in, in uh, democratic societies in general, is it's kind of like an anti-utopia. The idea is that you can, you're free to choose, you're, you're free to create your own mini-utopia. And so if you are a fundamentalist Christian, that's fine. And, you know, you can create your own community of uh, people who think that way or Buddhist or um, or maybe, you know, fly fishing is is your passion. And you think that's the best possible life. Uh, I happen to have grown up in the 60s. I was really into uh, psychedelic drugs. And I know communities of people who share that um, as uh, as a kind of basis for uh, for living and as a kind of spiritual path. So in our, you can say that our utopia consists of allowing people to discover as many possible utopias as possible, including one which would consist of turning your back on this kind of society and uh, turning your back on technology um, and uh, isolating yourself uh, in the woods with your family or again with another group of Luddite, uh, types. And so I'm just hoping that we can hang on to that. I, what worries me is that I feel that democracy is passing through a kind of crisis right now. And there are a lot of doubts about whether democracy will, um, will prevail. And there is always this counter trend in humans toward wanting certainty and you want to believe that what you value most uh, is objectively valuable and that other people should value it as well. Your truth, your answer to the mind-body problem, to the question of who we really are, is the correct answer. Uh, whether it's political or uh, spiritual or scientific and uh, I see strains of that kind of thinking in the world right now, and that that worries me. Oh, I agree, and I, I, you know, I, I would just say that I think democracy is incredibly dangerous, and that's why we have a republic. We don't have majority rule in the United States, and I think there's a fetishization of majority rule that's quite dangerous coming from uh, – that happens to be coming from the left. There's plenty of dangerous things coming from the right, but – a sort of worship of democracy as a majority rule democracy is, quote, the will of the people when it could be 52 percent of the people wanting to brutalize the other 48 or run their lives is really a dangerous thing. And I I wish we could get back to a world where we honored the Constitution a little bit more and had respect for the fact that uh, democracy is a flawed, imperfect system. And I, so I agree with everything you said, more or less, about the the beauty and poetry of a system that a utopia that says um, uh, there's no utopia, so 
we each we each create our own. But I, I want to get back to the book. Um, why does this book matter? And and, and I, I'm asking this partly because I know listeners. There must be some listeners who probably lost them already, but uh, who are saying like, "What the heck? Who cares? I mean, why this consciousness thing? I'm just going to live my life. What's the importance? Why does it matter whether science understands the brain and and the the idea of consciousness? Why is this of other than this is just intellectual golf? It's just just a, a form of intellectual entertainment. There's nothing important here. Do you agree? Do you, what's your answer to that from yeah, that listener um, who turned us off twenty minutes ago? Well, the 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 I think scientists and philosophers have uh, turned the mind body problem, the problem of consciousness and and free will, into these very sort of esoteric esoteric technical problems that are really only um, subjects for experts, and that you have to know you have to learn quite a bit of philosophy and science. Uh, biology, neuroscience, uh, and even mathematics to really have anything to say about about the mind-body problem and to understand uh, some of the new theories. And this is why I like to tell people that uh, it's really the problem of who you are. I, I assume everybody, all your listeners, uh, have at least at one point in their lives um, asked that question, what am I really? Uh, if you are religious, if you're Christian, I was brought up Catholic, you think what I am really is um, I'm an immortal soul that was created by God. And if I live in a certain way, then I will be rewarded by God. And if I live in a in, a, in another way, then I might be uh, punished. So that religious concept is a very common response to the question of, of uh, who we really are. Uh, science is giving us different ideas of who we really are. We are software program. We're a collection of uh, genes. We're we're animals that are related to other animals, and especially to the to the great apes. Um, and our our brains and and bodies, our minds are sculpted by natural selection, and we have certain uh, tendencies that can be explained by these theories. Economics, uh, economic theory, um, gives us a certain. Uh, view of ourselves. So, um, and every thinking person is trying to figure out where they stand in relation to all these different ideas that thinkers for millennia have been giving us about who we really are. And, uh, and the, the assumption has always been that there is an answer to these questions. And an answer that can help us make sense of our lives, that that can help us help give us a sense of meaning. And I'm actually telling you that there are an infinite number of answers. There is not a single answer. And actually, the idea that there is a single answer is a bad idea. It it has had bad consequences through human history. So I'm if my book succeeds. By the end, um, people will know why this matters, and they will realize that um, it's it's uh, it's as personal and important uh, a topic as there can be. It's an attempt to help people make sense of their lives. So I'm going to take the example of one of your uh, 
portraits, and you'll remember the name, although there's more than one with this related issue. Uh, it's the story of a, of a scientist who, who cheats on his wife, and it ends up destroying his marriage. Uh, and I don't think he's particularly happy about that. Um, and he's, there's some shame involved uh, in the way he treats his, his wife in the story. And at one point, he sort of reflects, well, uh, you know, it's biology. It's hard to resist sexual attraction. Right. And we all know that. Uh, that's not – that's what science teaches us. And if you're not careful, it's what science excuses, right? It says, eh, no, you can't blame yourself. You don't have personal responsibility. And that's just uh, – and so one, one way of thinking about that is – that's what science teaches us, but if we're not careful, it, it will lead us astray if we don't add to it the potential for personal responsibility. Although, you know, I think that's – in a way, that's sort of the microcosm of the whole issue, right? We have urges, some – most self-interested urges. This is where the economics also comes in, and it's what Adam Smith wrote about in the theory of moral sentiments. We're fundamentally self-interested, and yet we don't always act that way, which is extraordinary in a way. Right. You, yeah. At one point in the book, you say, uh, we understand who we are. We're biologically designed to reproduce. That's it. But, of course, right. we hate that, uh, except when we're uh, trying to excuse our behavior. We might invoke it, as that scientist did. But why do we, why do we hate that? Why is it that it bothers us that we're just animals? Why can't we accept it? And I, I would suggest it suggests that. Maybe we're not just animals, right? But I'm curious what your thought on that is. Well, um, so one of the great crises that's been created by modern science, and especially the, uh, the assumption that we are just matter, we're just collections of, uh, of uh, genes uh, designed by natural selection, is that um, we don't have any free will. It's very hard to understand how free will arises in a strictly physical universe. Uh, and there have been some great scientists who have been disbelievers in, uh, in free will. Einstein was one, very much to my dismay. Einstein once said that um, if the moon were conscious, it would think that it was revolving around the earth uh, because it wanted to. Yeah. Um, Francis Crick, who I interviewed back in the early 90s, and he, as I said earlier, was one of the people who made consciousness a scientifically respectable uh, topic, uh, didn't believe in free will and thought that uh, the more we learn about how the brain works, the more we will um, accept that free will is just uh, an illusion. I, maybe because I was brought up Catholic, maybe it's not strictly rational. I need free will. I need the concept of free will much more than I need the concept of God. Without free will, um, I can't make sense of life. I can't make, make sense of my own life. It seems to me that the choices that we make are what makes life meaningful for us. And the more choices that we have, the deeper the meaning is. This is why I think it's so important that that uh, we've had more freedom as um, as history has uh, progressed. There are no good explanations of free will right now. Uh, people invoke quantum mechanics, but with a lot of uh, hand waving, 
it's not very uh, it's not very plausible even even to someone like me who really wants free will uh, to exist. But um, my my conclusion is that this just shows that modern science is is radically incomplete because it it cannot yet explain this phenomenon that all of us know is real. Um, and yet, and, and without which life doesn't make any sense. And even understanding human progress, human history, um, without the concept of free will, it doesn't, it doesn't make any, it doesn't really make any sense. So, uh, so go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that we have a lot of evidence for free will. It's in our heads. <laughs> we, right. we, we feel it. We feel like we have free will. The question is whether that's an illusion or not. Um, I give an example. Uh, if you go back to 2007 and 2009 and 2011 in Econ Talk, I interrupted guests a lot more than I do now. I just interrupted you actually, but I've been, <laughs> but I've, I've wanted to interrupt you about four times during that last <laughs> uh, set of remarks you made. And I've, over the years, I've gotten better at interrupting less. I still fail now and then. And of course, there are times when I think it's good to interrupt still. But the question is, do I have control over that? Is that, this is just such a trivial example. It's, you know, it's akin to, uh, the second or third or fourth cookie at, uh, for dessert, uh, you know, do I have free will to take the second, third, fourth cookie? Sometimes it feels like I don't. I feel like I just ate the fourth one. I'm thinking, what the heck was I doing there? Obviously, I didn't think about it or I wouldn't have eaten it. Other times I think, here I am eating the cookie. I could choose not to, but I'm going to choose to, even though I might regret it later. All those daily decisions if we really don't feel like we have control, we, we certainly feel like we have control over them, which is your, your point. But as you also say, without it, what, there's nothing left. <laughs> it's, you may as well. I mean, you're so unmoored if you don't think you're responsible for your actions. If everything goes, forget the death of God. You know, the, the, was it Nietzsche or Dostoevsky who says, you know, once God is dead, I think it's Dostoevsky, without God, anything, anything is, everything is allowed. Yeah. Without free will, boy, is everything allowed. So I may be under the illusion that I've become a better interviewer because of a decision I made. But if that if that isn't true, then why would I try to get better in the future? There's right. no point to it. And yet I do. I am. And I will. Um, so it seems to me, I don't know, you have to live your life as if there is free will is, I think, the right way to say it. Well, the, the way I look at it is, um, you know, I've got all these arguments uh, that I use to Try to convince myself and other people that free will exists, and uh, what I found is that they rarely work on somebody who's really sure that it that it doesn't exist. But one of the, one that I use is just that that free will must exist if some people have more of it than others. So uh, you and I have more free will, and by that I mean more um, more of a capacity to see different options for ourselves, to, to imagine different trajectories for our lives ahead of us. We have more of that capacity now than we did certainly um, when we were infants. And then, uh, and even more than we, when we were uh, nine or 10 years old, just because we, we didn't know much about the world uh, at that point. So presumably as we acquire more experience, more knowledge of the world, um, we can see more different, more possibilities ahead of us 
Also, free will is dependent on the cultural and political environment in which we grow up. So I, I, we were just talking before about uh, the expansion of, of human freedom and human rights, and it's, they have grown enormously just in my lifetime, uh, both for um, people like us and especially for women and for African-Americans, for uh, homosexuals. So um, again, without, uh, without a conce- concept of free will, then you eliminate all these different measures of, of human progress. To me, those are absolutely real. And it's almost, it's, it's almost beside the point that physics and chemistry and biology can't figure out what it means to have more choices. I don't really care. Maybe they will catch up at some point and um, maybe they won't. But to discard our concept of free will because science can't explain it now seems to me just needlessly destructive and nihilistic. So I want to make a different pitch for your book um, related to this. Uh, And then I'm going to take us in a different direction where I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, a different topic, which is the following. Uh, The unexamined life is not worth living. It's uh, attributed to Socrates. I I think there's something to it. not just because it's part of what makes us human, but partly because if you want to have a satisfying life or a meaningful life or a happy life or a pleasurable life or a contributing life, you, you need to understand yourself a little bit. And your book forces us, to the reader, to grapple with what we're about and to think about what we want to do with this short, temporary time we have here on Earth. And that would seem to me to be kind of important. So I, I want to talk to you about – ask you about something you mentioned in passing a couple of times, which is meditation. Uh, There's an enormous uh, fad, it seems to me, or intellectual trend toward the value of meditation. I've become a little bit of a meditator over the last few years. It's gone to a, a number of silent meditation retreats, and I think perhaps an illusion, but I think it's helped me understand myself much better. Uh, you're a bit of a skeptic. It comes through in your book, so – uh, a lot of people are touting meditation as a is the thing that will save humanity, which I think is ludicrous. A lot of people tout it as a road to morality. I think that's also ludicrous, but I do think it's the road to some self understanding if done uh, in a thoughtful way. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny you bring this up because um, I have been, you know, I'm a child of the '60s, so I had a lot of friends who went chasing after gurus and learned various kinds of. Uh, meditations. I was more into psychedelics than uh, than meditation and yoga. But I, I, a good friend of mine, Robert Wright, is a really talented science writer. Wrote a book called "Why Buddhism Is True." Came out a couple of years ago. He and his wife, who are dear friends of mine, have been bugging me for years to go on a, a Buddhist retreat um, because they say that I, I, you know, I can't be a critic really unless I've given it a. a good shot. And I just dismissed that. And then I finally decided last summer after I'd finished my book to give, uh, to, to try a retreat. And so I went on a retreat in uh, last July, uh, a one week silent retreat, lots of meditation, but mainly just lots of lying on my back on, on the grass and watching clouds <laughs> float by and Russ, it blew my mind. It's, I, I had a, a, a profound experience. I, I felt like I was high on LSD for pretty much the whole week. 
And um, I'm still a little bit in the afterglow of that. And, uh, you know, going back to my book, I guess one of the themes of my book is that not only do different people have uh, arrive at different understandings of who they really are, but, but individuals keep changing uh, their ideas about who they really are. I certainly have throughout my life. Um, and my views have changed again just in the last few months because of this, this retreat. So I, I have, um, really had to revise my estimate of the, uh, of the value of meditation. I still think that it's way overhyped. Um, but in my case, I agree. I think I've become, my girlfriend says I'm a nicer person since I went on this retreat. Uh, I, I just feel more relaxed. Um, I think that the greatest benefit is that I, I don't get as bored and restless as much as I used to. I don't feel the need to be busy all the time. I can be just kind of content in whatever moment or situation I happen to find myself in. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, this might all wear off, um, within the next couple of months or years. I don't know if I'm going to keep it up, but it just reminds me that, you know, life really is unpredictable and, uh, and that it's, it pays to try to be open-minded, um, both when it comes to understanding the world in general and understanding ourselves. I mean, I certainly haven't come to the end of trying to figure myself out. And Robert Wright was a guest uh, on Econ Talk talking about his book. We'll put a link up to that. Uh, and I'm sympathetic, of course, to that transformation. I think I've experienced something of that myself. I, I think the flip side of that would be the following. Uh, I remember meeting a friend I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, this is a few years ago, old friend. And I remember being struck with how little he had changed, <laughs> thinking he's the same old fill in the blank. Same old guy, same old person. He hasn't changed at all. And then I realized, you know, he probably thinks the same thing about me. <laughs> and if he only knew how different I am inside, and, and I wonder how much of that is just the passage of time versus actual transformation. I, I, think, I think I'm a much different person than I was before I went on my three silent meditation retreats. But I also worry that's an illusion that to the outside world, to my, to my wife and children. I mean, they tease me about it all the time. Endlessly <laughs> uh, about uh, whether I've changed or not. You know, I I have less anxiety when I travel because of that retreat, those retreats. But when I travel with my kids, you know, of course, they're always uh, uh, it, there's empirical evidence constantly being revealed uh, about the effectiveness of that of that transformation. So it's a very um, again, it's an example of what we're talking about here. It's subjectivity all the way down. Subjectivity all the way down and, and humans, uh, you know, we, it's not easy being in, in an identity crisis and trying to understand who you really are, but in a way it's, it's, it's what makes life so exciting um, and meaningful and what we have yearned for, for again, for millennia is a resolution to the identity crisis, both at, both that we go through as individuals and that 
uh, we go through collectively as as uh, species. We, we species we want to know who we really are, and religion is a manifestation of that. Uh, uh, an ideology like Marxism is a manifestation of that. Uh, we have scientific answers to the question of. Uh, of who we really are, and yet we we sort of squirt out of every um, ideological bottle that uh, we have created for ourselves, and that's a wonderful thing. And I'm sure that there are going to be ways that we have of under understanding ourselves in the future that come from not only science and philosophy, but also from the arts and from the new technologies that we create for ourselves that we can't even imagine now. And one of the reasons I wrote my book is to get people to accept that and be open-minded to that possibility and even embrace and cherish that that vision of the future. So you confess to being a child of the 60s, which means you're somewhere, you're somewhere in my age group. I'm 64. I'm 65. So you could argue this is something of an old man's game, uh, this self-awareness figuring out life thing. Um, I think when you're 18 or 24, uh, you have to spend some time living before you can figure out what what life's about. And I think I want to put in a, a plug for pragmatism, the philosophy. <laughs> I had a, a wonderful professor in college, Dick Smythe, who's since passed away, but was an extraordinary teacher. And he gave the example of the, the Cartesian urge to uh, while in a boat, to pull up every plank and examine it. Is this safe? Is it good? Is this a healthy plank or does it need replacing? And that that's not a practical, uh, pragmatic, literally pragmatic way to go through life because, you know, he was talking about intellectual planks. He was saying, you know, is this true? Do I Should I believe this or should I replace this view, this belief with a different view, as if reason could solve those problems? And I think We've a little bit in this conversation romanticized the ability to transform oneself. We are in many ways, as much as I love free will, we also are the product of our genes and our family and our culture and our country. And it's not it's a bit of an illusion to think that your mind can fix all the things that are wrong with your mind, which of course is what we're sort of talking about here. Yeah. Um well I, I guess I would object to the language of fixing our minds. I think that the idea that there's something wrong with us, this is where I disagree with my friend Robert Wright. He thinks that uh, the guy who wrote Buddhism, uh, Why Buddhism is True, he thinks that there really is something wrong with us. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a version of original sin. Yes. And Buddha, <laughs> yeah, Buddha told us that there's something wrong with us. And, and, and so they they are creating in a sense the problem that they purport uh to solve um and you know i'm i'm really sensitive uh to sensitive to that problem um this is why i'm saying that i'm trying to convince people to see identity crises as as positive and exciting another way that i try to get people to see just the human condition is and I think this comes from my experience with uh, psychedelic drugs, but it's something that I, I feel um, I certainly felt on my uh, my Buddhist uh, retreat, and I feel in all sorts of situations when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm not uh, high on psilocybin or, or or LSD, which is just that life is really strange, 
right? Life is really uh, weird. It is infinitely improbable. And I think this is something that science has actually helped us to understand. It's, it's, it's like a, a convergence of, of science and, um, and mysticism. Uh, life is, our existence is just infinitely improbable. And yet here we are. Um, and you know, if you think of one definition for something that's infinitely improbable and yet happens anyway, would be a miracle. So I like to tell my students when I feel like when they seem to be glum, which they often are these days, um, I give them this little spiel about how life is a miracle and, and you should, you know, you've got to get on with your life. As you said, there are these practical realities. You've got to get a job, you know, if you want to have kids and, and, um, and get married, there are certain things you have to do to make that happen and, and, and to make it a, a success, but try to stand back and just look at your life and life in general now and then and realize how extraordinary it is. Um, this is something that, that I also try to, uh, show in my book, the mind body problem, the human condition, uh, consciousness, all these things. There's a paradox. The more we study them, the stranger they seem, the more inexplicable uh, they seem. Um, and that's what I'm trying to get people to see as well. It reminds me of the um, – this is a very strange thing to be reminded of, but in, in P.G. Woodhouse, the great British comic writer, uh, Bertie Wooster is not very bright. And uh, his his valet, his, his butler, his valet is Jeeves, who's quite bright. And the humor of the Jeeves stories is that Jeeves is a lot smarter than his than his boss. And a lot of things mystify Bertie uh, because he's not very smart <laughs> uh, and so he's not very self-aware either. And something will happen and he'll say, you know, Jeeves, life is rum. And it's a British expression. I think it just means weird. Um, and I think about it all the time. Life is so rum. It's um, – I think we have a tendency and it's part of your book in a – way we haven't talked about you know i love the insight of ed lemur econ talk guest who said um you know we are storytelling pattern seeking animals and we really like those utopias those ideologies those religions the things that we want to organize our thinking around and there's such a temptation and the one i've been thinking about lately and uh if this if all goes as planned this episode with you john comes out after a conversation with peter berkowitz on the enlightenment and, and you know i've an urge like we all do. Is the Enlightenment good or is it bad? Well, it's both. <laughs> and right. it's really hard to accept that. I, I had an incredible example of it recently where uh, in the aftermath of the murders in Pittsburgh of 11 Jews on a Saturday morning, uh, I went to the funeral of two of the people who were killed in Pittsburgh as I just felt I, I should have. And it was one of the most it's it's almost embarrassing to say this. It was one of the most exhilarating and and inspiring things I've done in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it's embarrassing because it was a tragedy. We were commemorating a tragedy uh, at this funeral, but there was an unimaginable outpouring of human love and affection by the fifteen or eighteen hundred people who were at that funeral, including members of the Pittsburgh Steelers who were there because the sister of these two brothers who had been killed had worked for the Steelers. So in the middle of the NFL season, uh, Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback, and Mike Tomlin, the coach, showed up at a funeral 
took off three hours in the middle of the day, which is just, I don't think people realize what a bizarre and, and incredible thing that is for an NFL people to do. That's not the way they behave. Uh, people flew back to Pittsburgh who weren't Jewish, who didn't know any of these people, just because they felt they should be there. Every policeman that I talked to and thanked for being out on the street that day, uh, a number of them felt guilty. They were sad and sorry that they hadn't prevented this. And so in the middle of this most heinous crime that human a human being could do to just take people's lives for of strangers for, for no reason other than their their religious heritage, this unbelievable human joy of not joy is not the right word, but but coming together in compassion was on display there. So which is it? Are human beings fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? Well, we're both. <laughs> Life yeah. is rum. Life is and that poetry, that richness of the human experience to me is is just deeply I'm deeply gratified when I appreciate it. And um I just think it's a appreciating it's a, a huge part of being alive. Yeah, I when you were you were talking about this um uh, about going to those funerals, it reminded me of my reaction to uh, you know, the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Uh, so I was living just above New York City. And um, that morning, I, I, my wife and I, now ex-wife, ran up to this hill uh, near where we live. And we could see the New York City skyline. And we could see that the, uh, the Twin Towers had collapsed. They weren't, they weren't there anymore. And I remember that day as feeling both uh, oh, terrified and you know really frightened and thinking about the consequences for our young children then. But also, I also felt that kind of exhilaration. Everything seemed brighter and more real. I, I think that, that, yeah, that the death, the tragedy, and the unpredictability of it was a reminder of how fragile life is. And how easily it can be snatched away from us, um, which helps you see its its beauty, and uh, it helps you see um, the the all the good things that we have, the love and the friendship, and how much we have to lose. So um, that is a paradox. Uh, I, I this is something that I've tried to show um, in my in my own writing, I think it's what spiritual experiences do for us when they're really working. They help us confront um, the, this richness of our own lives with the, you know, the, the worst possible aspects and everything that's um, everything that's good. I, I you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a religious person myself. I haven't, I, you know, I stopped being Catholic a long time ago and I've never found a concept of God that makes any sense to me because, uh, you know, the, the traditional God of Christianity and of Judaism and Islam, um, who is supposedly all powerful and loves us, uh, allows these terrible things to happen. How can that be? This is the problem of evil. But the flip side of the problem of evil is the problem of beauty yeah. and friendship and love and everything that makes life worth living. That's a problem too. If you're an atheist, how do you account for that? And a strict materialism. And this is, this is something that I, that, um, that I 
explore in my book and I ask all my subjects, strict materialism um, doesn't really give an adequate explanation for, you know, this fantastic human adventure in which we do actually make progress. We, we learn ways to live with each other with more tolerance and, and uh, respect and to give ourselves more, more freedom. So, um, yeah, it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you bring me to an issue that, was, that came up in a conversation with Alan Lightman in a couple episodes back uh, where he makes the point in his book, um, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. He says, I wonder if anything impermanent can matter. And he's asked the question, uh, you know, he says, I don't remember this exactly how he says it, but this is the gist of it. You know, Shakespeare, King Lear, great, great play. And maybe it'll last a thousand years, maybe 10,000. But at some point, all the lights will go out in the universe. Uh, the stars, the sun will lose its energy and will burn out. If we've escaped to other galaxies, they too will, their stars will, other solar systems, their stars will burn out. And in his view, which disturbs him, uh, nothing is permanent, nothing. He invokes a, an extraordinary ant colony that somehow manages to last for decades. And in the midst of those decades, they, they create art and, and an understanding of what they are. But after 100 years, even an ant colony can't live beyond that, and it's gone. Did, is there anything meaningful about it? And it's a very bleak vision in a certain way. I, I fought against it when we talked about it, but afterward, either I can't remember whether I came to this idea or a listener wrote about it. Even though permanence seems to be the hallmark of, of meaning, impermanence is what gives life its meaning in so many ways. It's an incredible paradox, right? If we live forever, who cares what happens today, tomorrow, yesterday, a year from now? It's the fact that we that our time here is finite is what gives life its, its extraordinary bittersweetness, right? It's that it's that skyline in New York and the funeral I went to and all those things. The poignance of of the impermanence of life is deeply meaningful, which is crazy. Yeah, and we struggle against it, um, and yet in our struggles, we discover meaning, and we can also share our experience of being mortal, mortal creatures who are eventually going to lose everything that we, we love and in being able to share the experience. That's a kind of way of overcoming, overcoming the impermanence of things. Uh, you know, there are scientists who think that we can, we can become immortal and we can shed our, our, flesh and blood bodies and become these kinds of cyborgs or cyber creatures live in cyberspace uh, forever. I find that fascinating, but I also see it as a kind of human pathology yep. Yep. Uh, and an attempt to escape um, what also makes life so exciting and wonderful. Uh, but it's, you know, it's always going to be painful as well as as um, as beautiful and blissful. Uh, that that that's I, I guess growing up or a, a kind of mature spirituality just accepts both that 
the darkness as well as uh, all that's that's good about life. Um, it's not always easy for me, I've got to say. Uh, and, um, you know, I have children, so this is one reason I, I worry about the future, um, you know, just the near-term future. I've, I, I also worry about, I, I think about, along with Alan Lightman, who I've, I've met, um, how, how meaningful can life be if everything is going to be extinguished, I don't know, billions or trillions of yep. years from now, and we, and the universe uh, evolves towards some state of terminal heat death. There are some scientists who have tried to come up with solutions to that how we can survive in a, in an infinitely large, cold universe. Um, yeah, believe it or not, Freeman Dyson, one of the greatest physicists who ever lived has come up with all kinds of crazy schemes. We can, we can become, uh, gas clouds in space, sentient gas clouds. And our main cognitive activity will be figuring out how to conserve energy for another trillion years. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm just glad I admit, you know, that just makes me glad that I'm here sort of trapped in this aging body right now and, and capable of enjoying, um, enjoying the, the, the very mortal flesh and blood life that I have. You well, Freeman Dyson has also been a guest on the program. We did not talk about that. Um, but I, that would have been interesting. It, it strikes me and we'll close on this. It strikes me that, um, so many of these um, scientific explorations, the brain in the box, you know, the immortality through the singularity, uh, what you just mentioned of Freeman Dyson's, these are desperate attempts by people who don't believe in God to create a God that's different. Um, and God is one way to solve the impermanence problem, obviously. If you can't believe in God, it's interesting to me that you have to find something else. Why is that? Why do we care? Why can't we accept the fact uh, that life is, is short? Now, an animal, even a proton, with its limited consciousness, or a dog with its limited consciousness, uh, doesn't, I don't think, spends any time worrying about its mortality. I don't think it ever wonders, uh, should I eat this? Because it might make me sick, and then I'll uh, perhaps die before my time. I don't think a dog has those worries. We do. Why? Why do we have those worries? And I, to me, that's a. Um, I find that deeply inspiring. That mystery. It. 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 To some. It's, to some extent, it, it's a backbone of my uh, faith, my religious faith. It helps me. Uh, at least rationalize it in a scientific world. But uh, close with your thoughts on that. Well, the, the way I think about this sometimes is that, you know, I guess intellectually, rationally, I accept that um, none of our attempts to create a, a transcendent meaning work. That's what religions try to do. There's some scientific attempts to do something similar to that, the, the kind that, I was just mentioning that Freeman Dyson has proposed. Um, but wrestling with the meaninglessness of life is has given me meaning. I feel extraordinarily privileged to, uh, at the age of 65, 
to still be wrestling with um, these deep philosophical problems that most of us are supposed to give up in our sophomore year of college. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, talking to somebody like you, who obviously is obsessed with these sorts of things um, as well, it gives me a sense of companionship. It's fun. I enjoy it. And I'm going to do it as long as, as long as I, I can. I, I disagree with Socrates that an un, unexamined life is not worth living. I think that's a terrible thing to say because there are a lot of people who are not terribly introspective and they can have perfectly uh, good lives. But um, for me, it's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. My guest today has been John Horgan. His book is Mind, Body, Problems, Science, Subjectivity, and Who We Really Are. It's available online at no charge. You can get the Kindle version for a mere $5. We'll put links up to both of those. John, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.